Kia ora and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Sonia from the committee and today I'm delighted to be introducing the wonderful Nicholas Dillon speaking to Mike White. Nicholas discusses his very personal and heartfelt tribute to the birds of New Zealand, Drawn to the Wild. This session will look back over the artist's life in Marlborough, the birds he has painted, and his attraction to the more intangible aspects of nature. Please enjoy Nicholas Dillon speaking to Mike White. Fantastic festival. I hope some of you have been able to go to other sessions and have enjoyed them. Uh, but we've got a fabulous session to finish up with with uh, Nicholas Dillon today. Um, my name's Mike White. I'm a writer with Stuff. There's going to be the normal time for questions at the end of the session. Uh, just think up things as we're kind of having this discussion uh, that you might want to ask Nicholas uh, later on. And Nick's going to be available outside signing copies uh, that you can buy of this amazing book that he put out uh, late last year, Drawn to the Wild. So can I thank the once again, the organisers of this festival, a bunch of volunteers who just do an incredible job in putting on this event. Uh, it's a remarkable thing every year that happens, barring COVID. Um, and thank you, the audience, for supporting it so well. And thanks to all the sponsors, but particularly to Dog Point, whose wine I hope some of you are enjoying this afternoon while you listen to Nick. Nick Dillon's a rare thing in New Zealand. He's a full-time artist. Uh, even rare, he's a full-time artist who specialises in painting wildlife and in particular birds. Nick grew up in Marlborough, up the Waihopo Valley, and uh, now, after a bit of time overseas, he lives near the Wairau River on Rapara Road with his wife Charlotte and children Sophia and Archie. His first book, Drawn to the Wild was released last year. So ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Nicholas to the stage. So Nick, tell us where this all began and a story um, as a four-year-old with a thud on the window. Um, yeah, I, I mean, as, as time's gone on, I've, I've looked back as we do. And um, the thing uh, that I remember, uh, you know, what, what drew me to, to birds and, and pursuing uh, this idea of having to um, make images of them. And, and the very uh, earliest memory that I have uh, is of the little cottage that we were living in uh, when I was four or five years old. And uh, as Mike said, there was a thud on the window and I, and I um, was perplexed by where this noise had come from. So I rushed outside and uh, or rushed to the to the window and looked out and I saw um, the only thing I could see that looked different in the garden bed below at that age was, was what looked like a, a sort of stripy sock. And uh, <laughs> so I rushed out and picked it up and, and it, was, it was a bird, it was a shining cuckoo. Um, and I was utterly mesmerised by this, um, this bird which was um, injured, dying in my hands. Um, and I think the thing that I've, I'd seen birds before, of course, um, but this bird I was holding on to and, and it shimmered and, uh, with this iridescent plumage and uh, something very deep inside um, fired up uh, back then and it's exactly the same feeling that I have when I get excited about um, making a painting or, or having an idea for a painting or seeing something now. And it, it came from, from deep down inside. Um, it was very visceral, the feeling, and, and, and it sort of welled up. And, and uh, it, I liken it to being like an air bubble trapped in ice, uh, this feeling. And, and I talked to um, a, um, a physician once about where, where do feelings come from? Uh, what, what organ or what part of the body? And, and he said, Nick, I think uh, it comes from from somewhere, perhaps the solar plexus. So what, I think this was radiating out from there. And, uh, and so that was the very, very earliest memory that I have. And, and um, the other memories from that time uh, that, that are very strong all come from nature. Mm. And um, birds, uh, that, that I talk about the, um, the goldfinch, uh, the, the red admiral butterfly, 
um, certain things that trigger and, and, and sort of scents that came from nature. The smell of Daphne seems to be really strong and jasmine and, and um, all these things that, that just resonate and take me back um, to, to that time. But the, the shine and cuckoo was the, the thing that I think really did it. It, it just um, was this glittering bird that had, that had arrived. I didn't know it had arrived from the Pacific on migration, but it but looking back on it now, it, it, had, it had brought the, the, the sort of glittering, shimmering light of the Pacific with it. And did it die? Uh, it, it did, and, and uh. <laughs> sadly. But, but the news is, Mike, that it was taken to Nelson by my father. And there was a, a, a taxi, an elderly taxidermist there, uh, George Elliott, and he, uh, he stuffed it, mounted it, and uh, it came back home. And, and do you uh, still have it? Uh, I don't, but it, it belongs to someone I know. So, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I, I got know. rid of all my stuffed creatures. I went through a phase of <laughs> <laughs> needing them out of the house. So describe <laughs> the environment that you're growing up on. On the farm, I think the, the farm had been in your family since about 1848, isn't it? That, yes. that you were growing up on and your, your, your parents were farming then up the Waihapo. Just describe the environment and what you're seeing when you look out from your house and, and the creatures that are in it. Yeah. Well it, well, it was dry um, hill country. Um, we had uh, the, the cottage we initially grew up was low down on the farm. Um, and then when I was uh, five or six years old, we moved further up the hill where my parents built a house. And, and that house site was chosen for its, um, for its view down the valley. And, and it, was, it was one of those views that, that you're pretty lucky, anybody's pretty lucky to grow up with. Um, it was a very... Um, open, expansive view towards the Richmond Ranges and the, and the hills um, of, the, of the Marlborough Sounds. And that expansive view really captivated me. It, um, it, it just shimmered with, with light and, and, and when we got an easterly and it brought wind and it brought air in off Cook Strait and that mingled with the, the dry air of, of, of the Waihaupai Valley. It seemed, seemed to um, diffuse the light, and, and that even way back then, that light just played in my imagination, and, and it's something that I still um, use. I mean, just on, on Friday, I was uh, painting a band of doctoral, and I was trying to surround it, uh, this band of doctoral. It's quite a large oil that I'm working on, and I was trying to surround it with, with an atmosphere and light, and I always refer back to that, that sort of vibrating, um, diaphanous sort of hazy light. It just it spoke to me then and it, and it fascinates me still. Uh, so that, that was the view over, over sort of foothills down the, the, the length of the Waihopai Valley. And then behind us was a, was a relatively steep sort of mountain, uh, well, hill range of hills, uh, which was, was part of the farm. And that was my playground. Um, I was... Um, you know, relatively introverted, I think, um, and uh, and it was and nature for a young a, a young child is is a very easy place to escape to. Um, yeah. You only have to deal with yourself and the creatures around. And and uh, I, I guess um, yeah, I I went to nature a lot right from the beginning and and wandered the hills and and um, and yeah, felt like I became a part of it. So. Yeah, that was that was the, the home environment. Yep. It was it was a hill country um, sheep and beef farm. Yeah. yeah, and and throughout this period, while you're kind of immersed in this wonderful environment that you're lucky enough to grow up in, you start drawing, don't you, from a reasonably early age? Yeah, um, uh, I I did, Mike, and and um, the first drawings I made. Well, I'm sure I was drawing before six, but I think that the first drawings that my parents kept um, were this one here, 1972. They um, aged what? Aged. No, sorry, six. we're gonna we're gonna make it your age now uh, evident to everyone, but you have to tell us how old you are now. <laughs> yeah, round about. Should we say five or six? <laughs> yeah. So that that's a red-tailed tropic bird. I'd never seen a red-tailed tropic bird that came from a book, a photograph. Um, yep. And, uh, yeah, uh, I, I had this, this desire to make, um, to make images of, of birds. And, and we then. talked about banded doctoral earlier on. Here's one of your first efforts at it. Yes. And shall we look at a later effort? So there's a bit of progress there, Nick, isn't there? Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, well done. But well, so, so interestingly, um, that second shot, 
I've used that very pose, which was um, drawn uh, while I was sitting in the Wairo River uh, a couple of years back. And uh, that very pose is the painting I'm talking about that yep. I'm working on now. So I've used that for that painting. But if we go back to where we were, uh, this painting, which was made um, in 1972, this drawing, I think 1972 as well. And uh, I've put it alongside here, um, uh, one, um, a, a plate from, of the Band of Doctoral and the New Zealand Doctoral from um, Buller's Birds. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that... Seeing those um, drawings, uh, those books, rather. Tell us about that. Buller's Birds, uh, a lot of people will probably know better than me, but it's this kind of iconic book of New Zealand bird life, isn't it? And your grandparents had a copy. It's like an 1880s copy of this. And as a kid, they they would bring it down and you were allowed to leaf through it, weren't you? It was a pretty special kind of experience for a young kid, I imagine. Well, it was phenomenal. It was the biggest book I'd ever seen. I mean, it was huge and it weighed a ton. Well, there were two volumes of it and it, and it was bound in calf, well, they were bound in calfskin mm. and uh, they had sort of um, uh, gilt gold edges to the, to the, to the pages and, and every um, plate, every image uh, was shielded with a, with a, yeah. a, a piece of tissue, tissue paper. paper. So mm. pulling back that, I, I, and I write about it in the book, that, that experience of, of Taking off that, removing that leaf of tissue paper and looking at the image was, was um, for, for me, was just terribly exciting. Where's, where, where's that copy of Buller's? It's in my studio. So you've still got yeah. it? Yeah. Wow. So it, it's 1888, yeah. as you said, and, and, uh, and back then it was a second edition and, and people had to subscribe to copies and their names are in the, in the front. So yeah. it's an it's a, yeah, incredible thing to have. Um, um, Occasionally you would draw other things, only occasionally though? Um, I think I'd probably draw all sorts of things, Mike, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> birds were certainly the, the, sure. the evident output. You loved hares though, didn't you? Yeah, and th- that was something, I mean, on the farm, of course, we were out on the farm all the time and, and my brother and sister and I would always ride on the back of the, of the four-wheel drive and, and we'd go over the, the back of this front country, this steep hill country and what we turned out the back and uh, my eyes of course were always on the outlook for for um, things in nature and, and birds were the were, were there and 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 I was um, you know sort of capturing these images in my in my mind's eye and and taking them yeah. back with me yes. inside um, to 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 draw when I got home but the, the other thing that really captivated me were hairs and these things were just spring out of nowhere, just materialise out of the tussock. And I got really fascinated by them. And, and then it became a little challenge to myself um, at that age to see if I could spot them um, just lying on the hillside or sitting on the hillside. And, and, and I just loved the way they, they became part of the, of the landscape. And, and it built up a very... Um, I, I built a very good eye, I guess, for looking, for sort of honing yeah. my skills for, for looking. I, I look back on that time as it being quite formative. It's a brilliant mind. training ground, isn't yeah. it? You know, and, but while you're immersed in this environment of the farm and the hill country, Marlborough, um, then you were exposed to another environment completely because you say that your father wasn't exactly a passionate farmer and he actually loved the water and the sounds. And so... All of a sudden, when uh, you were able to go down the sounds and, and had a boat, uh, you were exposed to a whole lot of other birds that suddenly you were able to start drawing. Yeah. No, my father was, um, he was frustrated by farming a lot of the time. And in the heat of summer, it all got too much and the flies and the sheep and, um, <laughs> and uh, the tranquil waters of, of the Marlborough Sounds called him. And, and, um, and, and so we'd fly down the valley at something like 140 k's and down Rapara <laughs> Road, which was all, there were no yeah. grapes back then. It was just bare, stony, bony sheep country and, and sheep shot from the fence lines and shades of tree and tree shade. And, and, uh, and we arrived in the sounds and everything just suddenly became very peaceful. And yeah. anyway, we sailed and, and uh, so seabirds um, became a part of, of, of my sort of um, bird experience. Every well. time you go down there, you know, counting yourself lucky that you made it down Rapara Road at 140 k's <laughs> without an accident, um, you, you would draw birds while you're out there on the water? 
Yeah, I, I was I was always drawing Mike, and yeah. and so it was it was just a natural thing to do. Yeah. But um, but I, I so this was a yacht that my parents mm. had, and and I spent a lot of time on the on the on the near the bow. It was something beautiful about while we were sailing, sitting on the bow and just looking at waves and wind and and waves breaking and the way that um, the way that wind would sort of build waves and etch the surface of the sea and I became I, I fell in love with the sea as well you know yeah. it, was a, it was a beautiful thing. Um, so this innate talent and this extreme energy and enthusiasm that you have for art and for drawing and for birds how much is this encouraged fostered at school while you're there? <laughs> um, I don't think uh, art was a big thing at school. I mean, uh, the prep school that I went to in South Canterbury, Waihee, I mean, uh, we, we drew and and, um, and uh, I did sets for the um, plays and, and um, that sort of thing, you know, um, backgrounds. And, uh, but, and, and then I went to Christ College after that and, and art was certainly not a, um, an, considered an important Was subject. it available? Could you do it? Oh, it was available yeah. and, I, and I did do it yeah. and I wasn't going to miss that. But yeah. um, we had an, a, an old art teacher who had been to the war and um, taught um, my father, I think, and, um, and he, he um, just told war stories. <laughs> and uh, that, was, that, was, that was our education was the war, not art. And so we all got doodling and drawing spitfires and things like that. And, and uh, he'd, you know, as I say in the book, he'd suddenly bellow out, um, if I see one more side on profile of a spitfire, I'll cane you. <laughs> um, and that was, that was art yeah. until my last year. And then we got a, a, a proper art teacher. So until that time, you're essentially self-taught in drawing and in painting. Yeah, I just, it's just something, I think like all children, um, yeah. something that I did and, and loved and, and um, yeah. Okay, and so you're down in Christchurch and when you're about 14 or 15, you're in a bookshop and you discover a book by a guy called Raymond Ching, who you'd never heard of before. Tell me about that experience and about how, and what you did that afternoon after you found that book. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I was just in a, in a bookshop, as I often was, in my lunch breaks and after school, and, and, and I loved books and, and art books and, and books on natural history. And uh, I, I just stumbled upon this. It was a big book uh, called The Bird Paintings by this guy called Raymond Ching. And I, as you say, I hadn't heard of him, and I, I was just absolutely gobsmacked by his work. It was like I'd seen a lot of bird art or bird illustration, and uh, and and his work just had a a, a, um, a vitality and and a, and a and a lifelike quality that I that I'd not seen uh, anything like it. And I don't think um, the world had seen paintings of that lifelike sort of quality. And he was a New Zealander. And he was a Kiwi. Yeah, yeah he was a New Zealander. Where, where did he but, live but in living, New Zealand? Uh, well, he was funny enough. He was brought up in Nelson. Uh, well, Nelson originally, and then Wellington, and then he moved to the to the UK, where he's come back and forth, but now lives there. Um, so that yeah, that was a pretty exciting moment, and and um, I was I was just shaking with excitement, and 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 um, was in the bookshop for a prolonged amount of time, and the <laughs> the kindly woman behind the book book uh, behind the counter suggested maybe I should head off to the library, <laughs> where you could go and spend time looking yeah. at books. Yeah. And um, so I went. I went to the library. Bike straight to the library. Skipped um, school that afternoon. Flag didn't you? school. Yeah. That was not. I'd forgotten about school to be frank. <laughs> um, and found several other copies um, uh, of other um, books that he'd. Produced. By that stage, was Raymond Ching a world? You know, world class. He was being recognised around the world. Yeah, or? he'd, he'd um, illustrated a, a book, um, the Collins, a, a field guide essentially, in in, um, in England, the Collins um, guide to the birds of. Britain, I think it was yep. called, yep. and um, and that had um, to much acclaim. And then he'd, he'd <clears> produced um, more serious paintings that weren't just illustrative. And uh, yeah, he was being heralded as the as the big news. Yeah. So when you eventually did return to school after the library session, you um, tell us about what your school careers guidance counsellor said when you suggested you wanted to be an artist. Yeah, well, we had these meetings with the careers um, advisor, and and um, and I suggested um, I was interested in art, 
vaguely, strangely interested in, uh, for a bloke at, at a school like that, <laughs> interested yeah. in fashion design. <laughs> and, um, and winemaking was the other thing. But I said to him that, um, that, that art was, uh, that painting was really the career that I wanted to pursue. And, and um, he just looked at me and he said, well, you know, seriously, Nick, this school, we're trying to produce lawyers and doctors and so on and so forth. And I said, well, I said, you know, I was kind of thinking, come on. <laughs> And, uh, and he said, how are you going to be able to afford to drive a BMW? He thought that might flatten me. But um, I was just like, um, you know, I gave up at that point and headed out the door. <laughs> you don't happen to drive a BMW now, no, do you, Nick? No, it'd be nice if you could drive past this place. So. Told you. Mm. Um, but your father gave you some great advice too, didn't he? Because you could have become a farmer. You could have returned up to the Waihopai Valley and carried on with a farm but your father told you something. He said, do something you love. Great yeah. advice? Great advice, I think, really. I mean, too often we're driven down paths by, by the powers that be, or parents perhaps even, that, that um, have aspirations for uh, where a child might, might go. And, um, uh, and that often, as we know, doesn't work out. But um, my father, I think, had understood himself that he'd gone back to the farm and, and that probably, you know, as time went on, he realised he should have done something else. So that yeah. was his advice and, and good advice too, I think. Okay, so and as, a, as, a, as still a as school, still about 15, you write to Raymond Ching, don't you, in the UK, and you ask him for his advice about what you do with your career. Yeah, I, I just thought um, well, I've got to get it from the horse's mouth. So um, I, I, I'd worked out through looking at his books what street he perhaps lived on in this little village in, in Sussex, and, and uh, I, I just took a plunge and wrote the address, wrote a letter, wrote the address down, sent it off, expecting probably nothing to come back. And, and finally, a letter did come back. Um, uh, he said in the opening lines uh, that your letter has emerged from under a pile of paper in the studio, which I can well imagine now. And uh, that was about six months later, and I got this this great letter back from him. Um, I'd asked him a whole host of questions, and and uh, but but most importantly, what what was his what were his feelings on going to art school yeah, or not, yeah. and whether I should. And, and I'd sent some photos of my work, and he could see that, that, that what I wanted to do was paint birds in a, in a kind of a realistic fashion, and that art school was going to send me or push me in all other directions, yeah. and that wouldn't be the right fit. So his advice was to travel the world, wasn't it? Yeah. Instead of going to art he school. He said, get alongside the artists you admire, travel the world, and look at as much art as you can. So. And, and, but before you did that... And aged 18, you held your first exhibition. I mean, that's pretty uncommon or extraordinary, Nick. And was that... Could that have gone either way? If, if it had been a complete flop, would you have, you know, turned around, gone to the farm or, or found a career that you could have afforded a BMW with? I mean, you know, what... Tell us about that, because 18-year-olds don't necessarily always have... Aspiring artists don't have exhibitions. No, I was bloody lucky, Mike, to, to get that. Um, it was partly thanks to my grandfather, who, who was, uh, was a great buyer of art and, and um, bought from this gallery, and he took some of my work along. And John Simpson, who lives here in Marlborough now, may well be out in the audience, I'm not sure, very kindly um, uh, said he'd hold, bravely, said he'd hold an exhibition. So that was extraordinary. And, and, um, and uh, it was in the days when, when galleries you know, were packed full with, 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 um, with punters. And, and so I arrived a little late to the opening and they were spilling out the door drinking wine and, and all the paintings bar one had sold. So it and was 15 out of 16 sold, didn't they? Right. Yeah, and, and so that was incredible. But if it had been the other way around, I think, to answer your question, I think I was probably too bloody-minded to give up. Yeah, <laughs> fantastic. I mean, but, but really, when you sell 15 out of 16 at your first exhibition as an 18-year-old, there's no turning back, is there? No, and, and, and it, felt, it felt right. Yeah. It, it um, endorsed my desire and, and, and feeling to, to, um, to pursue um, a career. And so part of that, you followed Raymond Ching's advice and you did travel. You went to, to the UK, to England, didn't you? Yeah. And when you got there, you got in touch with Raymond Ching again and, and wanted to go and see him. And tell us about his initial response and what happened after that. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, well, the first thing I did um, in, in London was, um, funny enough, I'd had an introduction to a gallery, the Tryon and Moreland Gallery, and, and, or the Tryon Gallery as it was then. It was a Cork Street Gallery, which was the gallery to, to, um, to exhibit in, and, and they'd kindly taken on some paintings of mine, and I knew that, that <coughs> Ray Ching was selling his work there, so I, I um, cheekily asked for his telephone number, which wasn't given away to most people, and... Um, and they, uh, being a Kiwi, they, they gave it to me. So I rang him up and, and he said, right, he said, come, ra- uh, come and see me on Wednesday at 9am and don't muck me round, another word he used. But, um, <laughs> uh, and uh, he said, I can see you for half an hour. Um, so I thought, right, okay. So I went down there with a handful of paintings and, um, and emerged eight hours later. <laughs> <laughs> Um, with um, with a with a bag load of books um, on art and all sorts of stuff actually, but but art and birds and things and um, and I'd spent eight hours with with my hero and yeah. uh, that was a an extraordinary thing yeah. and um, we we spent the day just looking at his work, talking about art, talking about music, talking about all sorts of stuff and. Um, and just getting to know him, and, and, and I think he could see that, that my passion was, was akin to, to his, although I have to say that he's the most intensely passionate man about his um, work that I've ever met in my life. I mean, this, this guy was, you know, he had draw loads of hummingbird skins and things. It was like a, a museum, and, and he would, you know, he would hold them like this and shake, and his voice sort of stuttered yeah. with excitement. And yeah. oh, it was, for me, it was it was um, it was it was bliss. Yeah, yeah it was bliss. Yeah. Um, and so you stayed over in the UK. You travelled to the north of England. You spent your twenty first. Tell us how you spent your twenty first birthday. <laughs> well, I I'd got um, having grown up on a farm and uh, up a dusty road here, um, and and having lived in the south of England for. Uh, six months or so, um, it had all got too much and too claustrophobic. So I drove north and one hit. Um, I thought I was going to stop, over, do the drive over many days, and I and I um, uh, got as far as Bam, the, the wonderful Bamber Castle on, on the um, on the coast um, uh, in, in northern England, and, and and I just pulled up in the sand dunes there and thought um, I was just sleep in the back of my vehicle as you do at that age, and. Um, it was just amazing. I stepped out and it was dusk and this beautiful soft northern dusk and, and there was Bamberg. I mean, I'd barely seen a castle in my life and here was this extraordinary castle with rooks and ravens and crows wielding around its towers and, and right beside me where I'd parked this car, uh, my car, this um, short-eared owl um, was sitting looking at me like the wildest creature I'd ever seen and, and I just felt at home. And the next day, um, I went and stayed uh, with some people who I'd been um, given the names of uh, in the in the in the moors inland, and um, and they had a grouse moor, uh, a, a sort of hunting estate, and they had this beautiful stone house in in, um, in the middle of the moors, deep in the moors, and. Um, I was taken out um, on the moor and, and uh, left to my own devices to draw and paint, and I lost myself painting red grouse and all these other birds, and and, um, and it was just a beautiful sort of smoky, hazy afternoon, and, and next minute this peregrine falcon, which is a bird I'd never seen, and it was like the, it was like the, the holy grail of... of um, of, of falcons, I guess, and, and it just pitched in next to me. All the birds had suddenly fallen silent, and I knew something was up. And it pitched in on this rock a couple of metres away and just was there. And after the short-haired owl experience, mm. it, it was like, and it was my 21st birthday, and I just felt <laughs> it was just one of those serendipitous moments where I felt that, um, yeah. the, that life was meant to be. Uh, and, and then you got the opportunity to have an exhibition over there, and you spent, while you were preparing for that, you spent about a year, was it, in North Norfolk, and yeah. uh, painting, preparing paintings for this exhibition, and you began painting oils at this point. And one of the paintings that you did at this time, I think this is this one, is it? The yeah. Eurasian Avocets. The Avocets, yeah. Now, you say that this remains one of my better works. Explain <laughs> why you like this, why you think it's one of your better works, even though it's from a long time ago now. 
Uh, I, I, I love the composition, the light. Um, it just all came together. It's the second oil painting I've ever made wow. at, at that time. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it just, yeah, yeah. I just, it just worked. Uh, it was one of those things that sometimes paintings come off um, really well and, and I still look at it. That's funnily enough owned by a friend of mine in Christchurch who happened to be in the UK. His father had just sold a... Um, uh, a phenomenally expensive old Alfa Romeo P3 at, at Christie's at Monte Carlo. Uh, Rob had a bit of money up his sleeve at the time because he had a dole out from this, and he came to my exhibition. It was it was quite a hefty price, and, and, uh, and even then English pounds then. Yeah. And uh, he just said, "I'm having that," and I said, "Fantastic!" So, and so um, you get to see it every so now I get and to again. See it, yeah, isn't that nice? Yeah, which is yeah, lovely. Yeah. It's even been here at the Millennium Gallery oh, on exhibition. So, yeah. yeah. You eventually did come back to New Zealand in your mid-twenties, and when you arrived back after this amazing experience that you've had in the UK, and you've travelled around Europe also looking at an awful lot of art and talking to people, but when you arrived back here, did people kind of think, oh, well, Nick will have got that out of his system, this bird business, and, and did they think that you'd kind of now get a real job that could afford a BMW? <laughs> I don't know. I think I'd, I think it had become clear that I was uh, that I was going to paint um, and and certainly birds. But I have regularly been asked this question of um, you know and, and by close friends too. <laughs> um, you know, are you still painting birds? As though you know that that's just a, something you do uh, to start with, and then you grow up and, and get a real real yeah. a real career Go as on. an artist, yeah, yeah, <laughs> painting yeah. something else. But you returned home to Marlborough too, didn't you? I mean, in a way, it's a nice parallel with some of the birds that you paint, the migratory birds, they return home to where they are. Tell us about, this is the Bartel Godwit, isn't it? So yeah. um, tell us a little bit about this amazing bird that, and just very briefly, what its, its annual cycle is essentially. Yeah, well, well, godwits have become pretty well known, so a lot of people know the story now. But um, they're an extraordinary bird that breeds in, in Arctic, um, across the top of the Arctic, really, the Arctic tundra and, and Siberia. There are various different subspecies of the bar-tailed godwit, and, and and we get one that breeds in in um, Arctic Alaska. Um, and they go up there for uh, for a very brief time. Um, when they fly north, well, so they breed there and then they fly south to New Zealand. They fly, they go north through through the Yellow Sea up through China. And this is all, you know, they've got satellite um, yep. monitors now and we can see it all in real time as they do it and it's extraordinary. And uh, but, the, but the most remarkable thing is, um, is that they fly direct on their southbound um, journey across the vast belly of the Pacific, um, non-stop, eight, nine, ten days. Yep against all um, storms and headwinds and, and um, arrive here um, in, into northern New Zealand and, and I've been and it's a phenomenal thing and um, and I've been lucky enough a couple of years ago to um, see uh, 18 juvenile bar-tailed godwits land in front of me on a beach wow. and these are juveniles so they've just finished their migration they've just finished wow. flying across the Pacific juvenile birds never been here before three or four months old, uh, it's, it's staggering. And, yeah. and you can tell that they've just arrived because their wings, they can't put their wings, they've been doing this. They can't <laughs> put their wings away. And yeah. they stagger around and they feed. And, and this was on the, um, the Mungafai Sandspit yeah. in Northland. And uh, it was just an extraordinary morning. And these things came out of a leaden sky and pitched in next to me. And, and I just set up my scope and, and looked into their eyes, which just had this gleam like the ripened berries of the tundra that they'd left far behind. And, and just looking into that spirit was, was incredible. And um, I, I'm fascinated by them. I always have been. Yeah. But to see that yeah. um, just really... Because we ring the bells in Christchurch, don't they, yeah. every year? You know? yeah. But less heralded, but equally amazing. Bells don't get rung for these little fellows. These are the, the redneck stint. It's about the only time it's laudable to be rednecked um, anywhere <laughs> in the world now. But tell us about these amazing little things as well. Yeah, well, they're, they're, um, 
they're tiny. They're this long and they're about, um, I can't remember their weight. But 30, 30 grams, 30 I grams think you said. Is, is something yeah. like that. And, and so they, they do the same thing, although I don't think they possibly, they possibly go down through Asia. It hasn't been proved yet, down through Asia rather than straight across the Pacific. But um, they turn up here. Um, these were drawn possibly at Lake Ellesmere, but maybe out at uh, uh, Lake Grasmere. And um, I, I love them that, that, that yeah. just because it's, it is more staggering than the godwit, that, yes, that, exactly. that a bird that small that could be blown straight back to Siberia. Mm. <laughs> and these guys breed in, in Siberia and eastern Russia, somewhere north of Chukotka. And, uh, yeah, it's just phenomenal. It is. Yeah. Um, you, are, you, you say in some ways you've been swimming against the tide, and, and I know Graham Sidney, who um, the, the great landscape artist um, from central Otago, who I know you've got to know well and is a friend of yours. Graham Sidney's often said that he's been, he's faced criticism for being a realist and, and, and his paintings of the landscape are too literal. Have you ever attracted any comment or criticism about that, that you're, oh, you're just a realist? Um, no, but I can smell it on the breeze out there, Mike. <laughs> Um, I, I think in, in, in art, you know, art's such a, a broad delta these days and, and, and realist art is probably considered like it's been seen before, it's been made for centuries. And, um, but really, I think, like Graham, um, to hell with it, uh, we do what we love. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we need to put these things on, on canvas and, and that's, although I'm probably after something that's... that's um, a feeling that's more abstract than than, than realist, I guess, yeah. in, a, in a sense, if that makes any sort of sense. And, 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 I mean, <laughs> um, but, but realism is how I come to it. And, and, I mean, you know, you say, I paint birds to be honest and true to myself, and I continue to find it deeply rewarding practices. So it doesn't matter what anyone else might say or might think, it's you being true to yourself. Well, I, I, yeah, exactly, I, and and I think that that is so important in, in everything we do as people, and and uh, we must believe in ourselves, and 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 I think a lot of people go into art and because they want to be an artist, and they chase uh, trends, and and well, trends have always been part of art, but but um, I think at the end of the day, if you if you paint what you love, what you truly believe, what are, what is deep down inside, what is you. Uh, that's the most important thing. And um, who yeah. buys your paintings, Nick? Are they New Zealanders? Are they expats who are homesick? Uh, who who are your clients nowadays? It's it's a it's a mix, really, Mike. And and um, and yes, paintings go overseas. Um, people who want to be reminded of of our, um, birds um, who who live away from them, and 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 those birds and nature mean something to them. Uh, people who have connection with nature, but also people who love art, I think. Yeah. So it's a, it is a mix. Do you think you're still improving or changing at all? <laughs> well, well, I, I, think, um, I think gradually, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I hope that I'm improving. And, yeah. and that's certainly the desire. There's, uh, there's just so far, I feel there is so far to go, and, and it just over, a bit over 50 you know, one starts to see the horizon out there, <laughs> and I and I go shit. There's a there's a lot of work to be done yeah. because I, I feel I'm a long way from what I could be. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. and and I don't. It it might be hard to uh, understand when when I mean people are impressed by the paintings, but I actually don't feel like I'm a great painter, and and I think there's a there's, there's a long way to go. I think it was. Um, Thomas Mann, the, the, the German um, writer and poet who, who wrote something like, a, a writer is someone for whom, uh, how does it go? A writer is, is um, someone for whom writing is harder than it, harder than it is for other people. Mm. And there's a resonance mm. with me mm. there that, 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 um, that I fight bloody hard to make a painting. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And there might be some talent there, but it's sheer will and bloody-mindedness to, 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 to make a painting and get it out the way that I do. And, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's a long way to go in, in that sense to get better, I think. 
What have we got here, Nick? This is um, South Island Pied Oysters. Tell us about a little story about these birds, about the time on State Highway 1 where you came yeah. across. Well, that's out of the book, Mike. And, and, um, yeah. and yeah, I mean, Pied Oyster Catchers are a bird that I love. And, um, and I was driving south of Cheviot one day and found a, a dead, there was a freshly killed one, had been hit by a car. Sadly, they sometimes fly low across the road. And, and it was in the middle of the road, but right, right with it was its mate who was um, distraught, obviously, if, if um, birds can be Because they make about. life? Yeah, they do. Yeah. Well, they, they certainly pair up for, yeah. for some years. And, and uh, so I pulled over because I could see for two reasons that there was going to be a second bird killed. And also I was quite interested in having a good look at this bird because you don't often get a chance to... So I pulled it off uh, the road and, and, um, and its mate just sort of came along as I was... Uh, and stood there while I took some photos and, and I think I did a drawing and, and um, but yeah it was pining for its um, for its soulmate. Yeah what birds are there birds, certain birds that captivate you more than others that you find yourself returning to time and again? Nick? Uh, there are and, and um, I think often it's birds that involve water um, uh, and it, it's birds that I perhaps grew up with on the farm, the paradise duck, yeah. the New Zealand falcon, uh, the spoonbills you've popped up there and, and uh, they've become a, a very important source of inspiration for me and I, and I just find them um, extraordinary birds uh, in all senses. They, they seem very ancient sort of creatures as though they've, as I think I've said or written before somewhere, um, like they belong to some very ancient tribe and, um, and they fascinate me. And, and I think as much as the birds, it's because they are white and they absorb and reflect light. Yeah. And, and um, as that painting probably illustrates as much as any painting I've done of them, it's about something beyond something else that's going on, all this, this I've talked about that vibrating light and, and things earlier and, and it's trying to embody that, you know, this, this, this light, yeah. this, this, what are we all, do, all doing on this spinning ball, you know, it's, <laughs> it's light that brings life, without it um, nothing would be visible and um, it, I think in my paintings I'm, although as I said, you know, I'm a realist and, and I'm, I'm trying to get beyond the bird or, or sense something beyond the bird, the, in, the invisible. And, and a Swedish um, uh, poet and, and artist wrote uh, something that's really resonated with me always, and, and that is that to see the invisible, we must thoroughly observe the visible. Let's thoroughly observe it. And, um, and I think... It's that thing where, where you know something so well, when I, when I look, you, you can go beyond. It might sound a bit magical, but the, there is so much out there that we don't understand in this world. And mm -hmm. I think through, through painting, I, I feel I can't see it, but I sense it. And, and trying to get that sense of it, that thing that we, that we don't know about this The this intangible. World. Yeah. yeah, the intangible, yeah. ineffable yeah. aspects of, yeah. of, of, of this world. Mind you... The time. Oh, and that's just another example. Um, that's the detail of the spoonbill's bill, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's like I, I likened it to a to a tribal artifact. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just ornate. It's extraordinary. Yeah. They remind me of a, a Maasai Mara warrior or something, you know. And especially <laughs> out here in the Wairau Lagoons, where they've got um, uh, what I call scientific bling. You know, they've got rings that, which are often bright yellow and red, and they look like these sort of Maasai warriors. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, the amount of time that you've spent out just looking at birds, painting and drawing birds, you've inevitably become a bit of a, an expert in their behaviour. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. So can you answer, why do birds stand on one leg? Uh, well, often it's, to, con it's, it's to rest and to conserve heat. So they lose they lose a lot of heat through their through their legs, and um, and it, and it's rest, and um, they find it remarkably easy to stand on one leg, Mike. Good, well, <laughs> good luck to them. Unlike us, yeah. Another point where they're much smarter or better than us. Um, one of the look, just tell us this wonderful story. This is an Australasian bittern, and I mean, you've got to know these birds. You've got to know their nature and their habit. 
but sometimes out of the blue, things happen, you come across them and you get to observe it firsthand. Just tell us the wee story about this bird and what you saw one day driving back from Karamea, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, it was Karamea. And uh, it was just inland from Karamea towards the uh, Iparara um, yeah. uh, caves and gorge. But um, the, the, the bittern is, is seldom seen. They're, they're a marsh bird, they're, they're uncommon, they're threatened, um, and they look just like the rushes. And, uh, and when they are disturbed, they stand um, upright, unlike this guy, um, and, and look like a, like a bulrush or what have you. So they, they, they almost become invisible. Um, but here I was um, bowling down a shingle road and, and came round the corner and here was um, this bitten um, in a little wee um, ditch um, and it had just snaffled an eel. And... Um, and I came to a screeching halt, of course, and the bitten was just there, and, it, and it, they freeze rather than fly off yep. them. And he froze, he swallowed the, the eel, and he froze in this, and tucked himself in, because uh, he had no rushes to imitate. And this eel went round and round in his <laughs> neck. <laughs> and I subject, subjected him to some um, pain, I suspect, because I, I, I didn't have my drawing gear. Uh, that was in my boot, sadly. I learned a lesson that day. Uh, but I did have a road map and a pen, so I, I sketched him out the window and, and then went on the merry way and let him have his dinner. But uh, yeah, that all, was a all the all the while the eels wriggling inside him, or yeah. trying to get down. Oh yeah. gosh! Tell us, I mean, that's a, a wonderful example of you being at the ready, seeing something and being able to sketch it. Tell us a bit more about your work about how you sketch and do you want to show just briefly um, bring out one of your sketchbooks so that people have a better idea of that and, and the process that that you go through as you as you capture birds in the wild yeah well I, well I, I I don't spend enough time outdoors um, painting um, <laughs> I, I need to more but it's it's my it is my spiritual home, I guess, that, that in, in that sense. It's my Turanga Waiwai. It's where I feel <coughs> closest to myself, to my, to my inner self. Um, and, um, and working outdoors um, is, is that connection point. I can't work from photographs. I mean, I, I do take photographs and use them as well. But for me, the absolutely vital thing is to observe firsthand, as if you are seeing something for the very first moment. So the human brain remembers things and imprints that on our system and, and to be able to see, to try and see things afresh uh, without it being coloured by, by previous um, uh, experiences. I try to leave myself very open in that sense. The wonderful neurologist um, Oliver Sacks uh, said that the, that the visual um, image stays on the retina for about seven or eight seconds before the brain, the mind colours it with, with other experiences. So for me it's getting um, that, that, that moment down in the sketchbook. So I work through a, through a high powered telescope with binoculars and, um, and try and, and, and draw in the moment um, to, to, to see as freshly as I can. So I, I work into a sketchbook like this. I actually make these sketchbooks myself because the paper that um, that I use I have imported, and um, it just chops down into a size that makes um, a sketchbook. And so I learned how to bind books, and it's a craft that <laughs> I kind of enjoy. But um, uh, here is some sketches of a, of a wecker uh, done on the west coast. Uh, it's an example. At this one, I actually drew. Um, and, and I actually painted this um, the following day back in my studio because I didn't have a, a lot of time at that moment. But um, many of these paintings, that was on the Mangafai spit uh, around the time I saw the doctorals that I was referring to, um, and that was painted on the spot. But uh, I, yeah, make lots of drawings and, and then if I do have the chance to, to get out, if the birds are hanging around long enough, that's a banded rail on Waihiki Island. Um, if the birds are hanging around long enough then um, and the conditions are right, I'll use watercolour as well. Sure. The, 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 the Wairau 
river, the valley, the lagoons, I imagine they're familiar stomping ground for you. How far do you roam, though? You've talked about other places in New Zealand. Do you consciously make trips around New Zealand to, to capture different birds? Yeah, sadly, well, not sadly, but I mean, because I love it, but most of the stuff is done relatively close to home um, mm. just because of the convenience yep. and, and family life sure. and children and, and things like that. I mean, I think as time goes, goes on, I might roam further, but um, I do obviously get, a, get away at times, but... Um, I, I think there's something very beautiful about getting to know your own backyard to uh, to to come into contact with with birds that you, you that you know on a regular basis and an environment and a light and and things that, and you can never learn enough about it. So that on so the Wairau River, Kaikoura Coast, mm-hmm. um, the Upper Wairau. Um, Sananad area, um, yep. probably, and the, the Vernon lagoons yes. out here. Uh, so this is you where? Yeah, this is out here on the on the lagoons. Yep. 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 And is this, um, that's a common kind of situation to find you in? Like, is it binoculars? You've probably got a scope. Normally I have a, have a scope, um, and yeah, that's a, that's a typical sort of spot, finding something that's, that's vaguely comfortable to sit on. <laughs> yeah, so... so um, do you take anything for comfort, like a chair? Or I've got a little, a little blow-up, you know, the yeah. um, blow-up mattresses we use for camping. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, I found one in Mitchell Sports yeah. here that they had that, that, that had been given by, um, by the rep, uh, which was a miniature one, and it was just perfect for sticking under your bum. So, <laughs> so that's in my, in my backpack, and, um, and it, it blows up. And, and how many hours good. might you be out there for? Uh, it all depends. I mean, I can sure. lose myself sometimes um, yeah. for, for hours, yeah. Do you sometimes go out there or find yourself out there and just think, I'm not going to draw today, I'm just going to sit and absorb and enjoy this, or does it always work when you're out there? Um, That's that's part of work, just the sitting and looking. But yes, I mean, sometimes I do go out and I I just sit and and look. And and for me, it's the beauty of observation and, and that looking, I mean, so much, you know, um, falls into the into the soul um, by by just looking and and, and drawing creates a, a a three-way thing between the the eyes and the brain and the hand and and there's something that that sort of cements uh, the image inside in combination with the sketchbook but but even just just looking is is a very beautiful thing yeah. and and I can lose myself for hours and I feel it's a very primitive feeling and I feel like a, an ancient hunter or an Inuit or something sitting on an ice flow and just looking, and 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 I could sit for hours and and look or walk and look. I mean, it's. Um, do you always go out on your own, or do you ever have company with you, or you just want to be there? By most yourself? of the time, I'm I'm doing it on my own. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I mean, you know, I mean, I don't mind people, Mike. So good. Uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> people can come along if they want. Are some paintings that you do, Nick, just you love them too much or they feel too special or they're too good in some way that you can't bear to give them away or sell them and that you keep yourself? Um, Mike, um, most of the times when I've finished a painting, I can see where all the problems are for me, (laughs) (laughs) what I wrangled with. And, um, and, And I guess... Although they get close to what I'm after, it's that, it's that thing where you, you have an idea of what a painting's going to be, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept that, that, that has no concrete being. It's an idea that, that floats here somewhere or in here. And it's only when it comes out and emerges on the sheet of paper or, or, the, or the canvas that it becomes a, a solid and real, a concrete thing. Mm. And often that's disappointing because it's not how I imagined it, but imagination's a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> and so we always want or expect more. And, and it's probably in hindsight when I've forgotten the um, issues with the paintings that I look back on them and I think, actually, that was a bloody good thing. But we've, uh, slowly, <laughs> and my wife Charlotte's encouraged me to keep work along the way and I've realised the value of that also. Mm. Uh, to build up a collection of works that, that either mark certain points in my in my career or, yeah. or, or are paintings that that have some significance for various reasons. 
One drawing that you have kept is that you've kept for a very long time is a picture of a bellbird. Do you want to pull that one out of your bag and just show people and explain to us when you painted it, when you drew it, and why it still sits on your wall at home, as I understand. <laughs> um, well, look, this was when I was 11, so it's nothing, it's nothing special, but uh, Mike thought it'd be nice to bring it along, and, and um, it wasn't me that kept it, it was my parents or my yeah, grandmother, I thank think. thank goodness for being, yeah, eh? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And um, so it's just a bellbird feeding, hanging, penduline-like, working its way down a, a, a flax um, uh, flower and, and uh, was painted at home on the farm. Uh, I remember doing it. Um, it's it's quite a green looking bellbird, I have to say. But um, <laughs> uh, but it's just something that I've been mean, like those early drawings reminds yeah. me that I've, I've not done anything else. Um, yeah. that's that's been it. <laughs> Nick, can I ask? In all the years that you've been doing this, which is what thirty plus uh, forty years, kind of where you've been doing it seriously. What changes have you seen in the environment as you've been painting birds? Well, I think, I think there have been a lot, and, it, and, it, and it's been slow, but um, I think, um, for me, uh, the obvious thing is, um, which makes it a very global issue, is, um, is the migratory birds, uh, the redneck stint, the godwits. Um, there's a wonderful little bird that, that shows up used to show up a lot out at um, Lake Grassmere, the curlew sandpiper, another favourite of mine, breeds up in um, Arctic Siberia, not much bigger than a redneck stint. Its numbers have dwindled. I haven't seen one out there for years. Um, it's things like the reclamation of, um, of, of tidal estuaries um, in China, the Yellow Sea, those areas. Um, things we're doing here, perhaps what's going on in the Arctic, um, maybe warming. Um, it's yeah, um, that's that's where I notice it as as things that are going on with with migratory birds mostly. Um, you know, perhaps even the times that they arrive are varying a little bit, and that they they're clocking into what's going on in the environment and and um, trying to attune themselves to where, what what's happening and you know their northern breeding grounds. So, yeah. Yeah. And so it's a constant concern as to how things are changing, generally for the worse? Yeah. I mean, I don't think any of us like uh, what we're seeing. I mean, yeah. Rebecca Priestley spoke yeah. about this yesterday in Antarctica, and, um, you know, I mean, she was slightly heartening, I think, but uh, the fear is that, you know, it's not going to be sure. as bad, perhaps, as we, we think. But, I mean, as she said, Antarctica's been warm um, uh, what was it? For, uh, I can't remember the title of her book. Um, fifteen million. Fifteen years. million years, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So it's been warmer. They were growing beech trees down there, but I don't know what that means for us. We might be fried. No, indeed. Um, look, we've got a few moments for questions. Have people got questions while Nick's here at the back, sir? Um, I'm just thinking about your question about realism, Mike, and think of what you've the world of arts always one of fashion and, and trends. Can you see a time, I suppose it's well, it's crazy, we lose species where realism becomes sort of nearly fashionable, nearly <laughs> another, another. <laughs> I think there's always a place for realism, Luke, and, and, and I think, um, strangely enough, um, painting nature, it mightn't be a bad time to be painting nature <laughs> as well for that reason. Um, I think we, I think... Um, and I don't paint for environmental reasons, um, but if there's one thing that that um, that comes out of my work or out of what I do is that um, having that time to sit and observe um, the world around us, I think as as humans we've forgotten to do that, and we're not treating our environment very well, and and um, we only need to look at our, our um, uh, native people around the world, uh, old cultures, um, and the way they respect the land and the environment. And um, I think we need to, need to look back at them because what we're doing, we're forgetting about it and we're not looking, we're not looking, we're too busy making money and doing whatever. I don't know whether that really answers your question, Luke, I diverted there a little bit, deviated rather. Too busy buying BMWs. Yeah. Well, it could be that. <laughs> Other questions for Nick while we've got him here. 
I wanted to know, Nick, whether, I mean, you remain a full-time artist. How uncommon is that in New Zealand? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't mix and mingle enough with the, with the art world, but, um, in, uh, but, but the, yeah, I mean, there, I think the nature of making money from art, there are a lot who have to um, supplement it. With, a, with another job and um, so I feel very lucky to be able to do it full time and I've been very well supported um, over the years in the early years by my parents and then I've been lucky enough to sell paintings and sell them well and, and, and increasingly so and, and um, without the buying public, um, without those people who have supported by buying paintings I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing and, and I feel exceptionally lucky. Do you, beyond being lucky, you know, that people like your paintings, do you just feel the luckiest guy in the world that you've been able to have a life doing exactly what you wanted to do, essentially? Yeah, it's not, that's not lost on me, Mike. I mean, it's, um, I, I do, and, and I have to, as the older I get, the more I'm reminded that by looking at my friends who are battling with all sorts of stuff in their work environments, and um, here am I sitting on a log and the in the White O Lagoons or, or in my studio doing exactly, pretty much exactly what I want. It's not to say that there's not been a lot of hard work and yeah. toil and grind, but, um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do and, and to be able to express what I want to say. Well, thanks for doing it, Nick, and thank you for putting all, well, some of your amazing image, uh, paintings into this wonderful book. Um, as I say, there's copies of the books that will be available afterwards outside, and Nick will be available to sign um, copies of the book, um, Drawn to the Wild. Um, we'll close the session now, but please don't go away, because it is the last session of the book festival. So Margie's going to come up and just uh, say a wee karakia for us. But in the meantime, can you please just thank Nick for this wonderful session? That was Nicholas Dillon speaking to Mike White at the 2021 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers who have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about this year's event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please recommend it to family and friends. Thanks for listening.